Uh, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Um, as Pastor Albert said, I'm stepping in from youth service, and uh, it's really, really glad to be here with you guys today. Um, but before I get started, uh, let me open this up uh, in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for another Sunday where we come here and hear from your word. God, we want to know more of you. We want to love you more. And we want to grow in holiness. God, as we sit here today, help us to be undistracted and to learn from you. God, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of my sermon today is uh, The Christ. Is he the son of David or the Lord of David? Now, that's probably not a question that you wake up wondering. Like, oh, I wonder if Jesus, the Christ, is he the son of David or the Lord of David? That's not something that we uh, uh, comes into our mind every day. But it is a question that will define our lives. It is something that will change the trajectory of our life. It looks like a question at first that maybe they argued thousands of years ago. But I want to show today that the Lord of our life, who we see as Lord, it does matter. It does have an impact in our life, whether we see it or not. The Christ, as you know, um, just to be on the same page, is not Jesus' last name, but it's his title. Uh, it means the Messiah or the Anointed One. So think the Christ is any other title, like a president or officer or teacher. So in the same way, uh, Christ is not his last name, but it is the title. And so today's question, the Christ, is a debate of arguments. And we're going to jump into that today. And just to give us context as we've been going through uh, the book of Mark, we are currently in the last week of uh, Jesus' life. And, the first, and for the past couple weeks uh, in sermons, we've been seeing a heated exchange between the scribes and the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and Jesus. And you know, for the most part, it's mostly been the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes throwing questions at Jesus. Things like, uh, should we pay taxes to a corrupt government? Will there be marriage in heaven? What is the greatest commandment? But today's message, it's Jesus actually throwing a question back at them. And so it is a reversal. And we're going to see uh, what, it, what it means, who is the Christ. And so just to give a preview of today's sermon, we're just going to go through about four points. Uh, first, Jesus challenges the scribes, and we're going to see two things. First, the nature of the Christ. Secondly, the mission of the Christ. And then, depending on uh, our view of that, there are two results. There's first a, pic a picture of a fake disciple, and we see this in the hypocrisy of the scribes. Uh, but then there's also a picture of a genuine disciple in the devotion of the widow. And so in order to first discover the nature and the mission of the Christ, which is our first point, turn your Bibles with me, please, to Mark chapter 12. We'll be in Mark chapter 12 today. Starting at verse 35. I'll read verses 35 to 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can a scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? 
David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And so there's a lot going on here. I know there's different things. Jesus is referencing an Old Testament passage. I want to unpack that slowly. But uh, the next slide will show that the main question is that Jesus is asking, how can the Christ be the son of David as well as the Lord of David? That's the main question that Jesus is asking. So to jump in, the nature of the Christ. So Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And for that original context, it was one of the most exalted prophetic psalms. And it speaks of a future king and priest, namely Jesus. And so David, uh, as it it says, he writes in the Holy Spirit, which means that he was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these authoritative and prophetic words. And there's just one phrase I just want us to focus on. It's really going to define the argument. It's this, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, when you first read this, it's kind of confusing. Like, what is David talking about? How can there be two gods? Who is David? Is he one of the lords in here? Is it one of his servants talking? And it's confusing at first, but actually, David is not talking about himself. He's talking about Yahweh, God, but also the future Messiah. So in a sense, yes, there are, I guess, two gods, because God the Father and God the Son, but David is not referring to himself. He's a spectator. He's merely writing what the Holy Spirit has inspired him to write. The Lord says to my Lord. And so this affirms that the Christ is the Lord, the Lord of David. And we know this because it's further confirmed in Acts chapter 2, verse 34, which says this, For David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's that verse again. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And all this goes to show that the nature of the Christ is that he is the Lord of David, not simply the son of David. Now, Jesus is not saying you can only pick one. He's merely challenging their view of who the Christ is. And that's important because uh, for the Jews in those days, their view of the Messiah was that one day a Messiah would come, a king would come, and he would restore Israel to their national powerhouse days back in the Old Testament where they were the greatest uh, nation in the surrounding area. They wanted to be king of the hill again. And so these Jews, they wanted a king and Messiah who would do that. They're expecting a future son of David that would have their national and political interests in mind. Because after all, in in the Old Testament, didn't God choose Israel? So doesn't it make sense that when God, um, uh, when the Messiah comes, that he will go to Israel again? I mean, it kind of makes sense if you think about it. But Jesus wants to challenge this notion. Yes, the Christ is the son and descendant of David, but he's also so much More than that, he is the Lord of David. 
And so Jesus is not merely the son of David, but also the Lord of David, and what's more, the son of God. And that's what the nature of the Christ is. Now, if you know what the nature of something is, that has large implications for what they are trying to do, what this person or object, what its goals are. So this affects the mission of the Christ. And that's the second thing that we're going to look at today, the mission of the Christ. So Jesus goes on and he quotes Psalm 110, which, which says, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And again, this accurately portrays the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, because Jesus is often portrayed as being seated at the right hand of God, which is, symbolizes a very privileged position. And so Jesus sits at the right hand of God so that God can conquer Jesus' enemies once and for all. Listen as I read Ephesians 1, verses 19 to 22. I'll just read it out loud. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God, he places the Christ, Jesus Christ, at his right hand so that he can defeat his enemies once and for all. And for what purpose? Why defeat Jesus' enemies? Well, Mark says it um, in the first chapter, chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus, after his first words in his public ministry, Chapter 1, verse 15 says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is the mission of the Christ. The mission of the Christ is to crush his enemies and establish his kingdom among all the nations. Not just Israel. Not just the Jews. But all nations. And as I was trying to think of an illustration that could really make sense or bring this home, um, I, I was trying not to choose a basketball illustration because we hear that a lot, but I'm like, but it works so well. So I'm just going to go with it, and we'll see how it works out um, to describe the nature and the mission of Jesus Christ. So last July, you know that LeBron signs with the Lakers, and Laker fans, they expect LeBron to bring a national championship and dominate other NBA teams. But I, I'd like to think that LeBron wants to do much more than that. He doesn't want to just change the Lakers. He wants to change the lives of people outside the Lakers, lives of people in America, and maybe the world. That sounds a little crazy, but let me explain why. I was reading an ESPN article about a couple months ago, and they show the different investments that he was invested in. So he's impacting the food industry. He has uh, investing in Blaze Pizza, uh, which makes good pizza, but I always go to Pyology. Uh, and he's invested in the music industry. Beats by Dre, which is earphones. He's invested in the entertainment industry. He has a TV show, and he'll have a movie coming up. He's invested in other sports like soccer, um, 2% stake in Liverpool. And he's also invested in the education, building schools for kids uh, in need to pay for them in college. 
And so for Laker fans who say, LeBron, we're still in eighth place. Come on, come back and rocket us back to fourth place. But maybe we don't understand that he's trying to do something more. He's trying to impact the, more than just things on the basketball court. He has a higher agenda. And I'm not trying to compare LeBron to Jesus because they are nothing alike. But I think on an infinitely more grand scale, that's what the Christ kind of is like. He came back, and yes, he is the son of David. He is a descendant of David, and he does offer salvation to the Jews. But also much more than that. He did come to change the world. He came to rescue not just the Jewish people, but the entire human race. To save them from their own depravity. From their own destruction. That is what it means when we see Jesus as Lord and to see the nature of what he's trying to do and the mission of what he's trying to do. Jesus does not not just exist so that we can, I guess, reach our personal goals, so that we can reach a certain milestone in life with maybe our work or our family or our hobbies. Jesus is not just a side character in our life that we can ask, God, help me to do this so that maybe I can feel more fulfilled in life. That makes us the main character, doesn't it? That makes us the Lord, not Jesus the Lord. His mission is not just to make our lives a tiny bit better, but it's to establish his kingdom in a fallen world, to offer the good news of salvation to all, to break the chains of sin and death, to adopt sinners into his family, and to restore the people of God and build his church and to crush his enemies. Those are often heard phrases in Christianity, but if you actually think about it, that changes life. That changes everything. And so the Christ is not just the son of David who merely returned to be a better king than David. He came to be Lord, Lord of all. And so in recap, the nature of the Christ is that he is Lord of David, not just the son of David, and the mission of the Christ is to crush his enemies and to establish his kingdom here on earth. And our response to this, positively or negatively, towards the nature and mission of the Christ, it will fundamentally alter our life direction. We might become like the fake disciples, as portrayed by the scribes, or we might be like the genuine disciples, as portrayed by this widow. And so let's jump into these two applications. They kind of serve as application points because we see two different responses to who Jesus actually is. So let's jump into that, that a picture of a fake disciple, the hypocrisy of the scribes. And I have the passage up on there. Let's read verses 38 to 40. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Let's stop there. So Jesus, he's condemning the scribes for two things. First one, they seek their own honor and worship, which ultimately belongs to God. But number two, they take advantage of the vulnerable and the needy. You could even say they're breaking the great commandments. They don't love God, they love themselves, and they don't love their neighbor. They take advantage of their neighbor. And we just learned about the great commandment last week. 
And so as Jesus is describing these scribes, he talks about them wearing long white robes that would reach their feet. And back then, white linen cloths, they were seen as a mark of distinction. If you wore something like that, you'd probably see, be seen as important. People would see scribes with the mo- utmost awe and respect. And if you lived back then, if a scribe passed by, people would stand up out of respect. And sometimes we do that here and there. Um, but it's really ironic because the role of a scribe is to study the law. It's to transcribe it, write commentaries on it, and to preserve scripture. And so it's ironic that despite being so close to the law, they fail to see the lawgiver. They fail to see the God and the one and the Lord who gives the law. They didn't want to give God worship. They wanted worship for themselves. They wanted public praise. They wanted people to see them in public, and they wanted the best seats and the synagogues and the feasts. Uh, They loved praying long prayers because to them, the longer you pray, the more spiritual you are. And they sought the honor and worship that belonged to God. And not only did they steal the honor that belonged to God, they took advantage of the people around them. It says they took advantage of the widows, devouring widows' houses. And that's a really, uh, I guess, abstract phrase. And the text isn't specific, but there's several possible outcomes. Uh, they could have accepted payments uh, from widows for legal advice, which was illegal. They could have uh, manipulated the widows because if their husbands are dead, um, they're more vulnerable. Um, they could have offered prayer in exchange for money. And so these are the different ways that scribes take advantage of the widows. And so these scribes, they seem like the most spiritual people in town, but deep down they were snakes. They had a double heart. Though they seemed close to God, in their hearts they were far from God. And so we're going to jump into the application a little bit later at the end, so I'll just hold off on that. But now let's look at a picture of not a fake disciple, but a genuine disciple. When someone actually sees God the Christ as Lord and sees his mission and wants to participate in that mission, their life's going to look a lot different. Their life, their life trajectory is totally going to change. So let's look at uh, the story or, or the picture of the widow. And so this is a picture of a genuine disciple, the devotion of the widow. And I know, I think you guys are probably familiar, you know, the widow gives two, two copper uh, pennies. I want to say off the front, it's not about the money, per se. That's, that's the outside. It, it's, it's about what's inside. There's sometimes too much focus on, do I have to sell everything to be like the widow? But that's not really what's going, what, it, what it's like. So uh, let's jump into this. In verse 41, let's just read that. In verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. Let's stop there. So, you know, after Jesus has this exchange with the scribes, he kind of sits down. He, he's kind of done teaching and, and uh, teaching to, to the scribes and challenging them. He just sits down and he just watches the treasury box. It's kind of like people watching. Uh, it's really what Jesus is doing. He's not engaging. He's just observing Who's giving what? What is their demeanor like? He's just kind of observing. Now, in the temple treasury, in the, in the center, there's about 13 chests. 
And so each chest had an opening, kind of opened up like, like a trumpet-like opening, and people could deposit different types of offerings. You could deposit shekel, you could deposit uh, birds, I guess, for the bird offering, kind of weird, uh, wood, frankincense, gold, and other free will offerings. And so Jesus is just watching people give, seeing like what their attitude is like, one by one. And he sees that a lot of people, they give a lot. People give very, very generously. But Jesus, in his all-knowing knowledge, sees their heart. But even more, he sees the heart of the poor widow. Look at verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. So let's stop there. A copper coin was the smallest value of currency back then. And so Mark translates that in a Roman context and shows that two copper coins equals a penny. And back then it was about one sixty-fourth of a denarius, and a denarius is about a day's wage. So kind of translating that to a minimum wage, it's maybe around like 90 cents if you're dividing a full day's pay by 64. Um, and Jesus calls the disciples over. He wants them to see, look, look at that. There's something special and outstanding about this widow who seems to give the least. Look at 43 to 44. And he calls his disciples to him and said to him, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's stop there. So Jesus, his very first words, truly I say to you, well, those are words Jesus uses now and then um, to utter something authoritative and true, which is this, that this widow gave more than, everything, than everyone else. Now, when I first read this, I mean, it's common to me. I, I've heard it before, but I just really had to think about it. A friend challenged me, like, this is really crazy if you think about it. Like, how does two coins outweigh the hundreds and thousands of dollars that probably people, maybe out of the generosity of the heart, were giving? Like, that really doesn't make sense. Jesus turns upside down conventional wisdom. Because in today's day and age, money talks. Buildings are not named after people who give a couple dollars. They are named after generous donors who contribute millions of dollars. Things like the John Wooden Center or the Secretary Center of the Arts, Ronald, Ronald Reagan Library. Nobody names buildings after people who give a couple dollars. That's not how we see the value of money nowadays. But Jesus is saying, it's not about the money, but I see something about this widow's heart. It's not about the two coins. It's about the two coins reflecting something deeper, which is a total and full devotion to God. That's what the two pennies represent. In her heart, she was totally committed to God. She gave her entire living. And the text even uh, overemphasizes that. She had put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And it's really crazy because how many coins did she have? She had two coins. Why didn't she just say, all right, here's one to God, one for myself. But she chooses to go all in and to give the two, the two coins to God. If Jesus is the Lord of lords, 
the king of kings and the true son of God, not just an accessory item in our life, then it makes total sense that our lives should be of complete and full devotion to God. And that's how it plays out in the life of this widow. And in the beginning, I said it's not about the money because I could take my entire bank account and donate it, but in my heart, I would want to come off as impressive or generous. It's not about the money. It's about the heart underneath. Do we see the Christ as Lord of all, the Son of God, maker of heaven and earth, worthy of every ounce of worship and service? If you do, if you actually embrace that, it does change your life. It does change your life. Our big idea today is this, that your view of Jesus and his mission will fundamentally define your life and actions to either, one, love God and fully devote to building his kingdom, or two, disregard God and live a life of hypocrisy. And I hope that I showed that this morning through the scriptures that in Jesus' first exchange, they were discussing the nature and the mission of the Christ, that it fundamentally alters how you treat God. But the result of that is either a fake disciple who doesn't love God, doesn't respect God, and uses others, or a genuine disciple. That there is a love for God, and it manifests itself in our lives and actions. So I have two application points for us today. First one is this. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? I think in a church, and Jesus is probably like one of the most commonly heard things. We're like, yes, we know he died for us. We know he loves us. We know he forgives us. I know I'm his forever. But in the depths and the deepest level of your heart, how do you view Jesus? Is he the Lord of your life? Or has something else on this earth taken that place? Has something else become Lord of your life? An earthly pursuit? A hobby? Maybe it's grades or success? A certain kind of good life that we are striving for? What is the Lord of your life? We all have a Lord. It's either Jesus Christ or it's something else. Or it's us. We worship ourselves. I must admit, even preparing um, this message was so hard because it convicted me that, yes, I am called to be a pastor, but why is it that every day, so many things just swipe my distraction away from God, my worship from God, and I'm just so inclined to other things, to just either get work done, to get busy, to watch a Netflix TV show. There are so many things that just fight for my attention. And it plays itself, in the, plays itself out in the everyday. So I want to ask you, who is Jesus to you? 
I pray that he is the Lord of all creation and deserving of your worship and of your life. The second one is to examine your tendency to either one, seek personal glory, or the other, seek the interests of God and others. That's our final application point. I think when we read the Bible, it's easy to look down on the scribes. It's like, yeah, of course they're wicked. Of course they would do that. I've heard this over and over again. But do we stop and maybe sometimes realize, is there a scribe-like tendency in us? Where maybe there's a deep down part of us where we want praise. We want applause. We want human affirmation. Is there some part of us that longs for that? You know, even very practically preparing for this sermon, I'm usually in the youth and I, I, I love them, I, I know them, but when I was uh, asked to preach in here, suddenly my anxiety level just shoots up. It's like, I don't know them as well. I want to impress the smart people. I want to relate to uh, the everyday people. I want to be all things to all people. And yeah, that caused me to work harder, but maybe for the wrong reasons. That caused me to look good on the outside, but inside it was just, all right, I can't disappoint them. I can't look foolish. I have to look put together. And so even in ministry and doing things that are spiritual, I see this scribe-like tendency to take the glory and attention from God. And it's scary. It was a battle all week just to fight God. Who is this sermon for? Is it for you? Is it so that your word can be proclaimed, that you might have the position of honor, that you could be the Christ in the center of attention? Maybe I know a lot of us serve. What, what is our attitude in serving? Is it so people can notice how hard we're working, how much we put, how much hours we put? There might be something within us that longs for that validation. It could occur in other ways, maybe hobbies, things we enjoy, sports or other things that we get into. Could these hobbies be other avenues when we're just trying to make ourselves great and we want people to be impressed with what we are and what we can do? There are so many things in life, whether it's family or, or school, where we long for a certain position of honor. But in the mess of all that, we lose sight of God. We forget that life, it's not about us. It's a, it's a life of service to God and a life of loving others. Last week, great commandment, love God and love others with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have we inverted that and made it all about us? I will love myself with all my heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and I will get others to validate me with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. What are the tendencies in our heart? So, just to tie it all together in conclusion, Jesus is not just the son of David sent to earth to make Israel great. He's not just um, a side character in our life. He is the Lord of our life. The person who fails to believe and embrace this truth, will they, they will veer off and become more and more like the scribe. They may know facts about God and appear close to the truth of God, but they couldn't be farther from God. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. And they rob God of his glory and take advantage of others. On the other hand, the person who embraces this truth that Jesus is Lord and they want to participate 
and his greater plan of establishing his kingdom, they will join the widow on her path of true discipleship. They see Christ not as someone just to meet and to help them reach their personal goals, but more than that, their lives are to help Jesus reach his goal of establishing his kingdom. Your view of who Christ is and his mission will define your life as actions, your life in actions. So I just pray that may God's grace open our hearts and empower us to see the Christ as he truly is. Let me pray for us. God, gracious God, you are our Lord. Help us from the tendency to see ourselves as Lord, to see ourselves as God of our own lives. God, you are Lord. We will fail every day, but please help us to love you our, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Keep us from becoming like the scribes. Help us to join the widow to fully devote our lives to you. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.